0: My beloved brothers and sisters, I very much appreciate the opportunity to meet with you this morning. Since the welfare program was inaugurated in the mid-1940s, I believe I have attended every such general conference welfare meeting we have held. The Church Welfare Program has, from the beginning, been in my mind associated with the Second Great Commandment. You will remember, of course, that when one of the Pharisees asked Jesus which is the Great Commandment in the Law, that he responded, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As ward bishop, I was involved in the welfare program when it was first announced and i have been involved in it ever since the long this long participation has taught me that the crowning aspect of a christian like life is found in serving one's fellow man in the church serving and helping one's neighbor is not done only through spontaneous kindly deeds to our immediate families and next-door neighbors. It is also accomplished through the Church Welfare Program, which is based upon modern revelation through prophets of this dispensation the, the its principles are eternal. They have been revealed and implemented to some extent where and whenever the Lord has established His Church upon the earth. We read in the Book of Mormon, for example, that Alma commanded that the people of the Church should impart of their substance every one according to. To that which he had, if he have mo- more abundantly, he should import more abundantly, and if, and uh, of his him that had but little, but little should be required, and to him that had not should be given and thus they should impart of their substance of their own free will and good desire towards God and to those priests that should uh, stood in need, yea, and to every needy, naked soul. And this he said unto them, having been commanded of God, and they did wait, walk uprightly before God, imparting to one another temporally and spiritually according to their needs and their wants. This was, as you will remember, in America, among the Nephites, about 147 years BC. In October of 1936, the Presidency of the Church issued this statement, which continues today as the guiding precept of welfare services. I quote, Our primary purpose was to set up, insofar as it might be possible, a system under which the curse of idleness would be done away with and the evils of the dole abolished, and independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect once more established among our people. The aim of the Church is to help the people to help themselves. Work is to be re-enthroned as the ruling principle of the lives of the Church membership. As a people and as a Church, we accept as fundamental truth the proposition that the responsibility of one's own economic maintenance rests first upon himself, second upon his family, and third upon the Church if he is a faithful member thereof. Welfare work divides itself into three main divisions. First, it is the basic doctrine of being self-sustaining to the full extent of one's ability by applying the principles of personal and family preparedness, sometimes referred to as temporal welfare. We are to provide our own needs. So doing puts us in position to share our surplus with others. In his April 1937 conference talk, President J. Reuben Clark outlined the course of independence which should be followed by every member of the Church. He there said, and I quote, What may we as a people and as individuals do for ourselves to prepare to meet this oncoming disaster which God in his wisdom may not turn aside Let us avoid debt as we would avoid a plague. Where we are now in debt, let us get out of debt. If not today, then tomorrow. Let us straightly and strictly live within our income and save a little. Let every head of every household see to it that he has on hand enough food and clothing and, where possible, fuel also for at least a year ahead. When circumstances combine to require help, it is Church doctrine that one rely upon his family for assistance. Obviously, no one should become a charge upon the public when his relatives are able to care for him. Every consideration of kindness and of justice, fairness, of the common good and of humanity require this. President Stephen L. Richards, taught a principle which every family in the church should would do well to bear in mind i i think said he that my food would choke me if it if i knew that while i could provide bread my aged father or mother or near kin were on public relief i believe a, de- a decent family pride is a salutary thing with my people with any people and in any nation a family pride in wholesome self-reliant and enterprising living a family pride that prom- that uh, promotes the almost the utmost solicitude for each member of the family. It wouldn't hurt my feelings, he continued, to hear a family boast that through all vicissitudes they had come to each other's help and had never received public assistance. I have known brothers and sisters to put each other through school by hard, self-sacrificing toil, I cannot imagine any of these permitting their father and mother to come to public relief. Finally, aid is available from the church. It has been so in all dispensation. Paul himself was a welfare worker. In a very modern sense of the term, we find him writing in Romans 15, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Arthea to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, says Paul, and their debtors they are. For if, if Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in temporal things. The obligation of the Church to help its poor is here placed by Paul on a par with communicating spiritual riches to those who are in darkness. By both means, we store up treasures in heaven. Charge them, he says, that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute willingly, to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. In our day, the Lord has given us this charge. If thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me and keep all my commandments. And behold, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support that which thou hast to import unto them with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. And inasmuch as ye impart of your substance unto the poor, ye will do it unto me, and they shall be laid before the bishop of my Church and his counselors, two of the elders or high priests, such as he shall appoint, or has appointed and not and set apart for that purpose. The foregoing principles are true when properly applied by members and leaders alike. They bring about the desired end of establishing the church and building up Zion. It is true, however, that when not properly applied, difficulties follow. Within two and a half years after the original Church Welfare Plan was set, was put in place by the First Presidency, President J. Reuben Clark made this significant statement in an ad- address he gave to publishers in Estes Park, Colorado, on June the 30th, 1939. The Church has found that the whole problem is essentially a question of spirituality rather than of finance or economics. In getting Church welfare work accomplished, where the spirituality has been high, the plan has succeeded. The plan has lagged. When spirituality is low, the Church has proved there is no substitute for the great commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. While we have made great strides in the program since that day, The principle still applies. Everything we do in welfare services must be measured by the accomplishment in spiritual terms. Givers must give out of a righteous heart and with a willing spirit. Receivers must receive with thankfulness and gladness of heart. The Spirit must confirm a bishop's evaluation regarding assistance. It must lead a home teacher and a visiting teacher to know how to respond to needs of families to whom they are assigned. With righteous intent, participating in this great work sanctifies the soul and enlarges the mind. As we spiritually mature in fulfilling our welfare responsibilities, whatever they may be, we prepare ourselves to become partakers of the divine nature. May it be our happy lot to be filled with that measure of spirit that we may be sealed with the bond of charity which, as Moroni said, is the pure love of Christ, and it it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of thy heart that ye may be filled with him, this love which he has bestowed upon all those who are true followers of his son jesus christ that we may become the sons and of god that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is that we may have this hope that we may be purified even as he is pure. It's my prayer that each and every one of us will learn and apply these fundamental principles of welfare services and gain thereby the promised reward. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: My dear brothers and sisters, it is always an inspiring experience to meet with you in the Welfare Services Session of General Conference. When we consider the significance of this conference as being convened on the 150th anniversary of the organization of the Church, it seems appropriate to address the subject, Welfare Services, Past, Present, and Future. The eternal principles upon which welfare services exist today were given by the Lord at the time of Adam. They have not changed over the centuries, nor will they change in the future. The Lord instructed Adam to subdue the earth with this charge, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Thus, in the beginning, he taught the principle of work and self-reliance. In modern scripture, the Lord declares, Thou shalt not be idle, for he that is idle shall not eat the bread nor wear the garments of the laborer. To the head of the family he gives this latter-day charge. And again, verily I say unto you, that every man who is obliged to provide for his own family, let him provide, and he shall in no wise lose his crown. After providing for our own, the Lord explains our next duty is to the poor and distressed among us. In section 44 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we read, Behold, I say unto you, that ye must visit the poor and the needy and administer to their relief. Administering to the relief of our neighbor is born of pure love or charity. In his memorable letter to the Corinthians, Paul explains, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Moroni further explains, Charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. By following the pure impulses of charity, members contribute resources to the Church from which the bishop may draw to help those in need. The Lord's charge to Bishop Whitney was to travel around about and among all the Churches, searching after the poor to administer to their wants by humbling the rich and the proud. From these scriptures we learn that the Lord expects several basic things of his people. First, he expects each individual to work and to provide for himself. Second, he expects each family to work together, to be independent and self-reliant. He expects the husband and father to provide for his own. He expects us as individuals and families to share our abundance with the poor and distressed. He expects the bishop to search out the poor and the sick to see that they are cared for. And above all, he expects his people to have charity in their hearts for their fellow men. Since welfare services is the gospel in action, we know that these divine principles are unchanging. They are eternal. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught these great principles 150 years ago when the early members practiced the principles of welfare in rudimentary application. It was in the 1930s that the welfare services program as we know it was formalized. It applied to the stakes of Zion, which at that time were mostly in the western part of the United States and Canada. Production projects, canneries, and storehouses were established among the people. Now, although there is still much to be done, the Welfare Service's activities in the United States and Canada are approaching maturity. By the end of 1982, nearly every bishop in these areas of the Church will have access to a physical storehouse. There are presently in operation 802 production projects, 51 central and regional bishop's storehouses. 20 deseret industries, 24 employment centers, and 35 LDS social service agencies. These exist as resources from which bishops can help the Saints become self-reliant as well as assist those who are unable to provide for themselves. Now as to the overseas areas of the Church. Over the past ten years, the international growth of stakes has been phenomenal, increasing from 41 to 269. With this growth, the Welfare Services Program is being introduced on an orderly basis. While every new member can and should live all gospel covenants relative to welfare, we do not expect branches and new wards to implement the full program until they have the capability to do so. It has taken 40-plus years for Welfare Services to reach its present status in the United States and Canada. We look forward to the day when the whole Church is sufficiently mature to have the entire program fully operative. It will require wise teaching of basic principles along with careful planning for measured and timely growth to occur. The basic principles discussed earlier must be be taught and lived before the program can appropriately move forward. There are those who would like to establish the full program immediately. Some time ago, Church leaders in one country asked, When are you going to bring the full program to us? Our people need it desperately. What they did not understand is that we do not just bring a program to the stakes. It is a part of the complete gospel plan and will develop a step at a time. One does not begin at the top rung of the ladder. There are many exciting and heartwarming developments in various parts of the world. Long-range Welfare Services Master Plans have been received from England, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. Those stakes in areas where master plans have been approved are moving forward with implementation under the direction of area councils, which are well-organized and functioning successfully. In Great Britain, the the local brethren have just purchased a dairy project to complement two row crop projects. They are also uh, in the process of acquiring facilities for a storehouse. In Australia, they have acquired five production projects and are producing oranges and many other fruits, as well as every type of local vegetable. They are planning to acquire land this year for storehouses in several major cities. In Uruguay... They are placing special emphasis on personal and family preparedness. Because of high unemployment in the country, they they were authorized to establish an employment center last year. A wonderful welfare services missionary couple and local volunteers are diligently working to help members find or upgrade their employment. Carefully but surely, progress is being made toward church preparedness. However, we still have great concern that as, as a people, we are far short of truly being prepared. The heart of welfare service's success is not Church preparedness, but member preparedness. The increased call by bishops on the resources of the storehouse system is an indication that many of our people do not have their reserves and consequently are unable to take care of their own basic needs. I'm afraid some members are laboring under the illusion that in difficult times the Church will take care of them, This is not so. The Church is prepared to take care of a limited number of members for a relatively short period of time. There should be no misunderstanding on this point. The fundamental principle of welfare services is that you and I provide for our own needs. If serious economic disruption were to occur, the Church would do all in its power to alleviate suffering by supplementing members' efforts but it would not be able to do for the saints what we have been taught to do for ourselves for over 40 years, that is, to have a year's supply of food, clothing, and where possible fuel, to have savings in reserve, and to to possess basic production skills. This counsel has been given at least twice a year for all these years. Some have followed the counsel of the brethren and are prepared, as were the five wise virgins. Some, like the foolish virgins, do not have enough oil in their lamps. A recent Church survey of a representative n- number of members in the United States indicates that in emergency circumstances such as job loss, illness, or natural disaster, the average family had the following supplies. Food, 52 weeks; 26 weeks. Clothes, 52 weeks. Water, two weeks. Fuel, four days. This is not even close to a year's supply. The survey also indicates the financial reserves are low. Only 17% could live for more than one year on their financial reserves if income were cut off. 45% reported they could only live for three months. The Lord says, If you are prepared, you shall not fear. I suppose each of us knows into which category we fall. What a wonderful thing it would be if all were prepared. Our challenge for the future is to be prepared and to perfect ourselves through keeping the commandments more fully. May we give of our time and talents in service to family, neighbors, church, and community. Through tithing and generous fast offering, we may share of our means to build up the Church and care for the poor and the needy. The Lord has given us this instruction in the eighty-eight section of the Doctrine and Covenants. See that ye love one another, Cease to be covetous. Learn to impart one to another as the gospel requires. Cease to be idle. Cease to be unclean. Cease to find fault one with another. Cease to sleep longer than is needful. Retire to thy bed early, that ye may not be weary. Arise early, that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated.
2: In the early spring of 1842, the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo united the charitable efforts of women in a desire to support the priesthood in a cause of Zion. The Prophet Joseph Smith told the sisters their offering was accepted of the Lord, and the sisters gave unstintingly. Following his injunction to search out the poor and needy and minister to their wants, they called a committee that went from house to house. The members who had need means were asked to give, and the needy were referred to the society for aid. Their reports typically read, One family, poor, sick, and distressed, and no bedding two families by the river, sick and nothing to eat, one widow lady, destitute of money. And The donations included sugar, bedding, clothes, onions, flour, whatever they had to give. One sister, having no goods, offered her time. Any portion or all, she said. Another would sew, knit, or wait on the sick. When President Smith organized the Relief Society, he predicted better days for the poor and needy. And through the efforts of these devoted sisters, many Saints were cared for and comforted. Perhaps this one line taken from the records could best describe these efforts. We have not said, Be ye warmed and clothed without trying to do it. To a divine concept, they added their commitment and to gospel principles, practice. Today's problems reflect the increasing complexity of our time. The welfare services of the Church include multiple systems and long-range plans, but the constant, through all its development, is the application of gospel principles in loving concern for another's need. A Relief Society president knows that in spite of a report which shows members receiving temporary assistance constitute 4% of award, to the sister in distress it is 100%. Her needs are whole and real. Consider the case of a woman we should call Sister Alan. Troubled and lonely, she had just returned from a hospital stay and major surgery. Two months before, her husband had abandoned his responsibility to their family of five. The bishop had visited, and now the Relief Society president came. It was a family needs visit. And as they talked, Sister Allen spoke wistfully of having some cream of asparagus soup and blueberry muffins. These items were not on the bishop's order form and could have been dismissed as not available. But the president really wanted to serve Sister Allen and wondered if this rather special request might suggest a need for more than food. What was Sister Allen's real need? Was it for commodities or for consideration, for someone to demonstrate that she was worthwhile by giving her special attention now, when her problems seemed to overwhelm her? Sensing the larger need, The Relief Society president ordered the items available through the storehouse, then assigned compassionate service responsibilities to her visiting teachers and others to provide meals that included the muffins and the soup, and also to show their concern in other visible and tangible ways. Sister Allen responded, She grew better aided by the food but more so from their friendship. Each problem is in some way unique and may require a special sensitivity to the care needed. President Romney said at last October conference, no hard and fast rules will ever be given in answer to the questions who should assist, how much assistance, should be given, how long, and how often should I assist. Caring for others like the quality of mercy is twice blessed, blessing him that gives and him that receives. In giving, we grow in patience, humility, faith, in all the elements of that pure love called charity. Every sister. Whether she is single or married, living alone or in a family, needs the opportunity to develop these Christ like attributes. Relief Society works with priesthood leaders to care for the sick and needy, and at the same time teaches through its curriculum the welfare principles and concepts which help every sister meet her own needs and give to others the kind of care that has always distinguished truly compassionate service. The six welfare principles stressed by President Kimball— love, work, service, stewardship, self-reliance, and consecration— are the foundation stones upon which all welfare services are built. Relief Society— Incorporating them into its lessons teaches the Christ like qualities of pure love or charity, teaches that work sustains, that service gives work its meaning, it teaches that stewardship brings accountability, and that self reliance allows a freedom to focus on another's need, that consecration is to give all one has. The Stake Relief Society education counselor can foster an understanding of these principles by first identifying them in Relief Society lessons. For example, the relationship of work and self-reliance to problem-solving or the importance of love and service in building self-esteem. Then. Recognizing the importance of these principles, not only in helping sisters to serve, but in preparing them to meet or prevent crises in their own lives, she can make certain that they are emphasized in Relief Society teaching. An education counselor should remember the words of the Lord when he said, "...I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts." She should recognize her stewardship to see that these gospel principles are taught in the relief societies of her stake, taught so effectively that sisters, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Recently, we met a young woman who had learned to make these principles operative in her life, bringing Sister Smith a beautiful rose She came to express her love and her gratitude for the blessings of the gospel. She is handicapped, and so is the more grateful for blessings because she knows so well pain and difficulty. When telling of how she is able to keep a house and care for a husband, she said it does take her longer. But a friend goes to the store to get what she needs, and she has learned to do everything else or nearly everything else herself. Cutting carrot strips for a war dinner is a challenge, but she does it and, in accepting such opportunities, enjoys the fulfillment of service. The desire to support the priesthood in this great Latter-day work, first seen in the Nauvoo Sisters, has led Relief Society women over many years to establish health facilities, store grain, serve adoptive parents, and meet other critical needs. This same desire motivates the Relief Society today. Teaching is one means of helping the sisters and their families realize the great promise declared by President Kimball. As givers gain control of their desires, and properly see others' needs in the light of their own wants, then the powers of the gospel are released in their lives. They learn that by living the great laws of consecration they ensure not only temporal salvation but also spiritual sanctification, that we may each fulfill our stewardship and earn this great reward, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
3: I've made it a habit of uh, running three miles every day. And I would have to admit that this walk up here leaves me a little more out of breath than the end of three miles. And it is a humbling experience to occupy this pulpit, which has been occupied by such great great men in welfare services. Sometime after the collapse of the Teton Dam with the ensuing flooding disaster, which affected several counties in eastern Idaho, while serving as the area welfare leader, I was asked to speak on behalf of the Church to a group of people who were responsible for civil defense and disaster relief. They included representatives from city, county, state, and federal organizations, as well as a number of religious, volunteer, and service groups. The requested topic was how the LDS Church is prepared to respond to emergency crises. I realized that they had already observed the response of the Church to the flood. They saw firsthand how the bishop's storehouse system was almost immediately prepared to ship in truckloads of supplies, and then they stood by to fill the requests of the local priesthood leaders. They saw the deseret industries help bring order out of chaos. Large mountains of clothing were donated from many parts of the country and were placed in large, unsorted piles. There were party dresses with work shoes, small sizes with large, men's with women's, and cleaned with soiled. In a very short time, the Deseret Industries had these much-needed articles of clothing cleaned, pressed, sized, and placed on racks from which those in need could choose for their particular needs. They saw how the social services was available to help the people in their social and emotional needs, as emotional tolerances were pressed to the limits. There were many jobs that were lost due to the flood and many new ones that uh, were created. And LDS employment was busy as employees and employers were matched together. They saw, as did people from all over the world, the many thousands of volunteers who came at their own expense to help in the cleanup effort. And many of you were a part of that great army who did so much and were appreciated by so many. There was a need in the early days of the flood cleanup for heavy equipment, and a request was made for tractors and front-end loaders from stakes both near and far. We thought in terms of five or six outfits, Soon after the request was made, the area welfare leader from Soda Springs, approximately 165 miles away, called and said, President, I understand you need some tractors and front-end loaders. We're ready and prepared to bring 150. I told him that 20 would be marvelous. There was a need for electricians to restore the power to the homes who had the electricity turned off because of the flood. We estimated that 150 would be a marvelous response, and that call went out. We didn't get 150. There were more than 450 licensed electricians and helpers who responded to that call. This same type of devotion and dedication was shown many, many times over as a variety of needs were fulfilled. It was evident to this group to whom I would speak, as well as others, what had happened in this major crisis. But were they aware of those who are helped every day on an individual basis? For example, the young girl who found love, understanding, and kindest assistance from social services when she was confronted with a major crisis in her life and, because of wise counsel, did not compound an already serious problem with a more grave tragedy when she found that there is an alternative to the accepted worldly philosophy of abortion. They did not know of the many other services of social services. The childless marriages were with loving homes who are blessed with the opportunity to uh, adopt a little infant, the Lamanite program, professional counseling, foster homes, and others. I was sure that most of them did not totally understand the Deseret Industries, and most certainly did not understand that it is a living example of the principle of the law of consecration where each of us have the opportunity to freely give of our surpluses. And then the lives of those great people who are not willing to be spectators in the arena of life are given the opportunity to maintain their dignity by enjoying the blessing of work. Perhaps they were not even aware that the Deseret Industries is open for all to come to make economic purchases which are so helpful in meeting the pressures of an inflated economy. Shopping at the Deseret Industries is like shopping at an exclusive store. There are many items there that are one of a kind. And with shipments arriving daily, we have a new opportunity to make new choices every day. On one occasion, as I had arrived early at the Deseret Industries prior to our monthly meeting of the local operating committee, I made a tour of the well-organized displays and racks of commodities when my eyes were drawn to the area of overcoats. One of them particularly appealed to me. It was a fine, all-wool, English-tailored coat. And I thought to myself, if it fits, I'll buy it. And I looked at the price, $4.75. And at that price, I knew it would fit. I bought it, and I paid cash for it. (laughs) I took it home, and and when I modeled it for my wife, I put my hands in the pocket, and there I found a number of collector-type one-cent postage stamps. And I guess they were probably worth about as much as I had paid for the coat. And I suspect that I was probably the only person who had ever made a purchase at the Desert Industries where I had not only made an excellent purchase, but I also received stamps. (laughs) This group of people to whom I would speak certainly had no way of knowing of the father who found himself with an understanding bishop exclaiming, Bishop, tragedy has struck our family. I've lost my job, and I need welfare. To which that knowledgeable bishop replied, Brother, you don't need welfare. What you need is a job, and you have come to the right place. That great bishop had just taught the great principle of work. The bishop, and that bishop's comment was not just an idle remark because he had available to him as part of the great storehouse system a ward employment specialist who has accessible to him not only the employers within the ward and stake but also through the employment center, those throughout the entire area. If a job could not be found in the open market, that same employment specialist becomes a resource to the bishop to help find meaningful work opportunities for the needy brother within the Lord's plan, thus allowing that father the joy of maintaining his dignity by working for the commodities received. This same employment system serves the needs of all members as they seek employment and to upgrade their opportunities. This group of interested people that I would speak to Wanted to know what we as the church can do in a major disaster. But, brothers and sisters, that is not all. There are heartaches, there are hurts, problems, yes, even disasters which occur in every life at some time. And in that individual's life, those personal disasters are just as real and just as deserving of our help as those who are involved in the flood of eastern Idaho or the earthquake in Guatemala or the flooding in California. I wanted this group to know that in the Church we are not only prepared to deal with major disasters which involve many, but His plan provides for the loving care of each of His children on an individual, one-on-one basis. Those of us who are here today have at our disposal the principles of the welfare plan, which assist us in helping to bless those who are in need. I give you my solemn witness that we are engaged in his work. May each one of us strive to carry out our stewardship so the work may be done in his own way. The work and labor which we perform in welfare services will lead us steadily forward to that time when we will be blessed to live the great law of consecration in a Zion society. May each of us be found doing our duty, I pray in the name of him whose plan it is, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.